The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au I invite you to take your Bibles again, please, to the book of Acts. We're going to read from verse number 46 of chapter 2 all the way down to the end of chapter 3. So chapter 2, verse 46, all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. The word of God says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Excuse me. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he would send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. What is the message that Luke is trying to get across to us in telling us this story and connecting to it the explanation that Peter gives? And the message is simply this, that the healing of the lame man illustrates God's power to forgive sin. That's Peter's driving message. And so for us today, what do we say? We say that faith in Jesus' name brings complete healing. It brings forgiveness of sin and healing in a multitude of different ways. To give you a simple outline, you can see it there in verses 1 to 10. There's the first paragraph, and we would say that is the event. That is the lame man's healing described. And then secondly, from verses 11 down to verse 16, we have the explanation. That's Peter's gospel message that he brings as a result of this message. And thirdly, from verse 17 all the way to verse 26, we can see the call to respond. And Peter preaches the gospel from the prophets and from Moses. The thing that we live with in this world is a sin-scarred and a sin-stained world. We look around, we can see it in every different corner, in every different place. You only have to open the newspaper and read through it for a while and see the horrible things that are happening in the world. You turn on the television, you look at the news, you see news documentaries and the, the unbelievable things that man will do to man. And we see the effects of sin. We see this creation that groans eagerly waiting for the redemption that's coming. But one of the other effects of sin is sickness. And what I mean by that is, don't go running home and say to your Aunt Betty, Pastor Nelson said you're sick because you're living in sin. That's not what I said. I want to get that really clear because I'm afraid somebody might misunderstand me. What I'm saying is that the, one of the results of sin in the world is the human body is now facing and suffering corruption all the time. We're constantly breaking down. Hair turns gray, hair falls out, bones get weak, joints fail. If you're a carpenter, cartilage wears out in your knees, your elbows fall apart, you can't see so well. I have two pairs of glasses i got to carry around with me now. It goes on and on. One, of you, one couple was describing how they were up late last night for a party, and they said that at their age, they're just not designed for late parties anymore. And it's true. We see all those declining effects. And the reason is sin has come into this world and it's corrupted everything. And so when we look at this story, 
one way to see it is to focus all on the physical healing of this man and not consider what Peter gives as an explanation and what Peter or what Luke actually doing as the author using Peter's situation, the healing of that man and his explanation is he's giving a very powerful illustration that the healing of sickness and the healing of this lame man is an illustration, a beautiful illustration of God's in Incredible power to heal and heal and forgive and not just heal physically, but heal emotionally and heal spiritually. But his power to forgive sin is so clearly illustrated by this lame man and the healing he experiences. Well, let's look at the the event. I want you to notice a couple of things you can see there that the setting is a place called the beautiful gate. What is the beautiful gate? It's one of I believe eight different gates, if I count correctly, eight gates around the outside of the Solomon's temple. It was the largest and it was considered the most beautiful, even though it wasn't gold or silver. It was overlaid in Corinthian bronze and it was intricately worked. And it's also called the Nicanor Gate. And I think it's amazing how the story is set up that this lame man is being carried to a place called the beautiful gate. And outside this beautiful gate, he is laid there that he might ask alms of those who are going by. So the setting is a gate called beautiful. It's a gate, as I understand it, from the court of the Gentiles into the temple. Although there was a lot of debate about whether that actually is true or not. But that's generally accepted as how it worked. And this lame man, born lame, is a clear picture of what sin does to a person. So I want to just go through and examine his situation and see how we can see from that the effect of sin on all of us. First of all, I want you to notice that he is lame from birth. He was born lame. Every single one of us we know from the scriptures is born in sin. We live in sin and we commit sin, but we are conceived in sin and we're born in sin so just as he was lame from birth so we are born in sin notice also that he's unable to walk now in scripture in the new testament particularly the idea of walking is often the way paul and other writers describe living living in it all its essence and so this man is unable to walk and all he really knows is not life at its best he knows existence. He knows life at a much limited, a much decreased capacity. His ability to truly live is hindered and prevented by his lameness. And brothers and sisters, the sin that we live in, the sin that we commit hinders us from living the life that God designed us and created us to live. He created us with a purpose to glorify him in everything that we do. And we can't because of sin. Notice also, he's being carried to ask alms at the entrance of the temple. He's unable to work. And just as he's unable to work and provide for a family and be fruitful in all of his endeavors, so sin hinders us and makes us unfruitful. In fact, it destroys and rots and corrodes the work of our hands because sin affects everything. He's unable to work and sin hinders us from fruitfulness. Notice something else here. He is unable to enter the temple. It's no accident, no mistake, no convenience that they get to the the gate called beautiful and lay him down and just leave him there and go on into the temple. He is not allowed to enter in. 
If we were to go to Leviticus chapter 21, verses 17 to 20, you would see there how that they were prevented and hindered from entering the temple, lame and blind and so on. So nobody, in fact, I was, I was looking at a website uh, yesterday late in the evening about the temple and about archaeology and what they found. And they actually found a big chunk of stone. And written on the stone in lettering was, none who are lame and so on may enter herein. You can't go beyond those gates. And so sin, in a similar way, it hinders us and makes us unacceptable to God. This man could not go into the only place that he knew where God was to be worshipped and offered to and adored and prayed to. He could not go in. And the reality is for all of us that sin makes us unacceptable to God just as surely as this man was unacceptable to go in. And, you know, I was sitting in my study this morning and I was thinking about the service and thinking about him. And, and you know, the verse that came to mind is the verse that comes out of the Psalms in Psalm 27. And I wonder how long this man lay there and stared at that beautiful gate. And no doubt he was set down on the ground and not able to stand and not able to walk. He watched them pass by. He watched one person and hundreds of people day go in and out of that temple. Hundreds of people who are going in and they could hear the music and he could smell the fire, but he was unable to go in. And I wonder if this psalm didn't come to the mind of this man as he lay there outside the temple. Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I wonder. I just, I just, you say, well, how do you know? I don't know. But I just wonder as he lay there and he was put there every day and he watched people going in and out, if there wasn't a desire deep within his heart to go into that place where God could be worshipped and have fellowship with the living God. He's unable to enter. Notice also back in Acts chapter 3 that he's carried his sin. Not sorry, not his sin. His situation affected others around him. Some had to come along and pick him up. And I don't know whether it was like the, the paralytic where they put him on a mat and four carried him like on a stretcher. Maybe one came along and hooked arms with him on his back and he lifted this lame man up on his back and carried him up to the temple and laid him down there. Don't know what it was. But his situation affected others. And it's a beautiful picture, or it's not a beautiful, wrong word. It's a poignant picture to us that sin in our hearts affects not only us, not only God, but those around us. Sin affects those around us. And this man's situation affected others. Notice also from the text that he is asking alms of those who are entering the temple. He cannot ask somebody to heal him. He can't ask somebody to come up and make his legs whole and strong. All he can do is put his hand out and ask alms of those who are walking into the temple. He's looking for the material, financial means by which he can be somehow supported. That's all he can do. And the reality is for all of us, there is nothing that we can do about our sin. We cannot get rid of it. It requires the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It required a Savior to die on a cross. And just like this man who is asking alms of those, those who are walking by, how much of our lives are spent 
looking for simple ways to alleviate the symptoms of the problem and never dealing with the root of the problem. He asks alms of those who are walking in. But he's not alone in the picture, is he? There's Peter and John. Now we started back up in uh, Acts 2 and verse 46. And really, chapter 3, the story here is, a, is an illustration, an example of what he's talking about when he says in verse 46 of chapter 2, day by day, attending the temple and so on. This is one example of what happened on one of those days. And Peter and John are walking and they're going up to the temple. And you know, I wonder as they walked along, if they talked about the Lord Jesus, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they talked about what Jesus had done and what Jesus had said. And they discussed back and forth. And as they walk up, something draws their eyes to this man lying on the ground. I don't think he was alone. I think there were many lame and sick and beggars along the way, all asking for alms. But for some reason, their focus is drawn to this one man as he lays there. And they look at him. And you know, what struck me was the compassion of Peter and John. I know what you're like when you see beggars or needy people in the street and you go walking by. How often are we like the Samaritan and the Pharisee and the priest and we just, you know, we're looking at our phones as we walk by or we pull out our, you know, we're doing something else so we don't notice. We kind of push those people out of our view and we don't have the compassion. But these two, Peter and John, look at this man. And no doubt they remembered all the times that Jesus was with them and he walked in and out amongst them and he went and he saw people who needed to be healed and he healed them and he put his fingers in people's ears and made them hear. He touched their eyes and made them see. Jesus was known for his compassion for the lost and his compassion for the sick and the struggling, the lepers, the deaf and the blind and the lame. He had compassion. Peter and John had compassion on this man. Notice they call for his attention. They reveal their true financial situation. We have no silver and we have no gold. I saw, it was a cartoon, little, wasn't a funny, it was supposed to be poignant. I think it was on Facebook. And it was a, a, a man in a very religious robe and he's sitting at a table and piled all over the table is stacks of money and coins and bags of wealth. And he's looking at one of his friends. He says in kind of a smug sort of a way, well, that silver and gold thing isn't true anymore. And the man looked back and said, no, and we don't see the lame healed anymore either. And I thought, ooh, that's an interesting comment. But these people, these Peter and John are going up to the temple and they say, we have no silver or gold. In other words, they had lived very simple and very modestly. There wasn't a wealthy church. And Peter and John did not go up to the temple putting some money in their pockets that they might give alms to earn some merit and be seen by others because Jesus said, don't give your alms where people can see you. But they definitely had compassion on this man. And they tell him, we don't have any financial means. And they're repeating what Jesus did in his ministry. And Peter promises him great blessing. He says to him, look at us. And he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter commands him to look, to rise up and to walk. And the scene there, I think, is as the man sees them, 
and he hears him talking and he turns and he focuses his attention. He's expecting, he's looking with an expectation to receive something from him. And I imagine his arm is still stretched out looking for the alms. You might have seen pictures of the Middle East and the beggars doing that. And Peter makes those statements and he reaches down, he takes the man by the right hand and he pulls him. And as he begins to pull him, the man begins to stand. And as he does, notice what the text says. It said his, in verse 7, his feet and ankles were made strong. Meaning what? He received that healing from external. It wasn't something already inside of him. He wasn't faking it and had been called out. His bluff hadn't been called because he was a hypocrite and a deceiver. No, he was truly lame. And now he'd received the strengthening in his ankles and he stood up and walked. And this man, I love the scene. I love the way Luke does it. He doesn't, you know, just put in the minimum words. He says he walks and he leaps. He walks and he leaps and he praises and he, he keeps piling up these words. It's kind of like the, you can almost sense the overflow of absolute exuberant joy in this layman. He's healed and first he's walking and then he's leaping up and down and then he's walking back and forth and then he backs up backwards just to show he can do it. He's so excited about this new life that he's received. And you can almost imagine the scene. He's just, he's so overjoyed. But did you notice what the first thing he did was? He walked up and entered the temple. Soon as he had strength, he got up. And I can go in. And he dove into the temple. He just wanted to be inside. And you know, that, that, that moment, that situation radically changed this man. But I want you to notice the man's faith. I want you to notice the way it's described. It's a beautiful illustration of faith. First of all, he looked expecting to receive something. There was faith. Faith looks. Faith looks to Jesus. You may remember the story. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, young man. I think he was uh, 14 or 15, maybe 16 years of age. He goes out, he used to walk every Sunday. He would, every chance he had, he would hear about a, a meeting, a church meeting going on, and he would walk to be there. And he walked to this one place, this little Methodist chapel in this little narrow side street in the city where he was, and he walks to get there, and the man who was supposed to preach doesn't show up because of all the snow falling outside. And this poor, illiterate farmer stands up, and Spurgeon called him stupid because he, he couldn't do much. And he began to preach, and all he preached was, Look unto me, all ye the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And all he could do to preach a sermon was just repeat the, the verse over and over again, emphasizing each word in its turn. And he came to the word, Look. And he saw Spurgeon sitting down the road there, and Spurgeon was just squirming as the Spirit of God was working on his heart and convicting him of his sin. And he pointed his finger down and he said, Look, young man. Look and be saved. And he pointed right at Spurgeon and preached to him. And Spurgeon said, all of a sudden it just broke open to him. He needed to look and be saved. This man looked. He expected to receive. He heard Peter's words. And those words were mixed with faith. He obeyed in faith. He stood up and he walked. Peter said, rise and walk. He didn't just kind of go, okay, and get halfway up and go, well, you know. No, he walked. He leaped. He ran back and forth. You can just see that joy as you read the text. There was faith in this man. He obeyed in faith. He walked in obedience of faith. He knew what it was 
to trust in the Lord. I'm convinced that this man heard what Peter was saying in the name of the Lord Jesus or the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Those words must have triggered something. He must have heard and remembered. Whatever it was, there was faith there and he responded and exercised that faith. In the story, we can see this, that what God has done through faith, what God still does through faith. Faith brought healing and strength to his body. Faith brought cleansing. When it says, look down in your Bibles at verse number 16. And Peter's preaching and he says that faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. That's a beautiful phrase if you understand Hebrew, which I barely do. And what it means is it's the same idea as an animal that's offered in sacrifice has to be unblemished. It's the exact same phrase. So this man understood and knew through faith in Jesus there was cleansing of his conscience. He was given perfect health in front of them all. Faith resulted in worship and thanksgiving. Faith made this man acceptable. He ran straight into the temple to be in the presence of God. He wanted to be inside there so much. That was his first. He didn't. Did you notice? He didn't even say, hey, Peter, thanks, John. Thanks. Great. Shake their hands, pat them on the shoulder and then run in. No, he's so excited that he can walk and go in. It's the first thing he does is he runs inside. And we know that he's hanging on to Peter and John. He's clean. He doesn't want to let them go. Maybe there's a little bit of fear mixed in there as well. I don't know, but whatever reason, he goes inside. Faith brings healing and strength. Faith brings cleansing. Faith brings life. The overflow of those words describing his walking and leaping. By the way, the walk there, the word that is continuous. He didn't just walk a little bit. I hear about healing once in a while today, and then I hear about how that healing fades and ends and comes. And I think, no, that's not what this man experienced. This man experienced faith where his faith and his healing was complete and total. Faith brought forgiveness. We're going to see that in a second. As as many as receive him, they'll know forgiveness. They'll be made sons and daughters of God. Peter under the Holy Spirit's leadership, uses this event to explain the gospel of forgiveness. And I want to look at that secondly. So verses 11 to 16, the explanation. Healing illustrates the forgiveness of sin. Now, Just like back on Pentecost morning, as Peter is preaching, we have, first of all, an event. The Spirit of God comes in power. And then we have a result. We have the people rushing out in the streets and they're preaching the gospel. And look what happens. All the crowd comes to them and they're bewildered and they're amazed and astonished. And then we have Peter standing up. And the first thing he does is he gives a correction. We're not drunk, as though some of you suppose this is something else. Now over in in Acts chapter 3, you have the same, almost the same uh, formula. You have an event. This man is healed. You have... Um, the crowd coming together. They're utterly amazed at what's happened. They come together. And what's the first thing Peter does? He stands up and he gives a correction. This is not because of our power or our piety. This is not to do with us that he's walking. This is something so much bigger and so much better. And so Peter begins his explanation. I want you to notice also the setting of where it happens. Now, in my Bible, it's called the portico. 
Some of your Bibles will use the term Solomon's Colonnade. And what that is, is a 1,500-foot-long uh, triple aisle. There's all these great big pillars that go up. It's set up on the back on the eastern side, eastern wall of the whole Temple Mount. And what happened in that place it was a great place to meet and gather. You could meet in there under shelter. It was covered over so they could have gatherings and fellowship and they could have discussions. It was a place for prayer and meditation. Uh, some have suggested it was the place where they sold all the animals. The money changers were all set up where Jesus cleared the tables out and pushed everything out. It's also interesting to note, it's the same place where the Sanhedrin met. That's the high court of the Jews. So in this colonnade, all these people from all over the temple compound come rushing in to hear what all this commotion is about. This man's shouting and his excitement and his joy and news spreads all over. The lame man has been healed. And they all come running and they get, they've walked by him for years and they've seen him out there and now they're seeing him and he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God and they all want to know what's going on. And Peter corrects them. It's not our power, not our piety. The apostles healed and healing was available to them. I want you to notice something else about healing too. We've got to be careful with this topic. Healing doesn't mean that everybody gets healed. Okay, for example, the apostles healed. What about Epaphras? He was Paul's traveling companion, and he got sick, and Paul left him behind. When Jesus was on the earth and he was healing people in Mark chapter 1, he, after the sun had gone down, they brought him all the people who were sick and lame and so on, and they laid him outside the door of Peter's house, and he walked out, and from then till very late at night, he went around and he healed them one after the other. And finally late at night, they begin to disperse, but there's still more to do, and Jesus gets up early in the morning, and he goes to a distant place to pray, and Peter comes to him and says, Hey, Lord! There's lots more to do. The crowd's gathering. Let's go back. And Jesus says, no, let's go elsewhere, for I came to preach the gospel. And the reality is that God's power to heal is still there. God does do healings today. I absolutely believe that. I know some would say, no, no, that power is long gone. It's not true. There are people in this world that experience healing from God. But I want you to notice very carefully, too, that Peter says it's not our power or our piety that this man is healed. Be very careful with the statement, I have the power to heal, or I have the gift of healing. Okay, God heals, not men. Now, Peter and John, there are lots of people out there. If they want to turn this into a healing service, they could have set up a little sign made it form a line, and Peter could have gone down and healed them all one after the other. He didn't do that. Why? Because I believe there are times when God calls men, when, it, when God does, to heal. But it's not all the time. It's not everywhere. It's not everyone. God has a purpose in every man's situation, including their sickness. I know that's a struggle for some, especially those who have been sick or, or struggle with physical issues all their life. That's a hard thing to hear. But God has a purpose in it. Does God heal? Yes, absolutely convinced of that. Does God always heal? Yes and no. Yes, God always heals, but the healing we receive, I'm talking about physical healing now, every single sickness and every single illness, every single physical issue in your body as a believer will be healed. When? 
when we stand face to face with the Lord. The work, there'll be no more sickness, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more suffering. So God does heal every single person. Sometimes God heals on this side of eternity. And I will not be the one that stands and says, God can't do that anymore because I am deathly afraid of telling God what he can and cannot do. But I, gotta, I also add, be very, very careful when you hear about healing and healing ministries and healing meetings and all this sort of thing. Be careful. Far too many have made too much money and too much living of false healing. And what happens is many men go forward looking for healing and coming away desperately disillusioned because they were promised something that God never did promise. So, Notice carefully, he says, it's not our power, it's not our piety that has made this man well, made this man strong. That's his correction. Now, his point is that God glorified Jesus in whose name, by faith in that name, this man is healed. Now, once you notice, we just got to pick our way through this. Notice the titles that Peter uses for the Lord Jesus. He's called the Lord's servant in verse 13. Our, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. That's an allusion all the way back to Isaiah 42. We're reading this morning in the Lord's Supper. That's an allusion to the suffering servant of the Lord. Notice also that as Peter speaks, he describes him as the holy and righteous one. Again, that's allusions back to Isaiah because all through the book of Isaiah, God is given the title of the Holy One. And the Holy and Righteous One describes, first of all, His character. He is holy, and it also describes the conduct of Jesus. He is righteous. He acts righteously. He speaks righteously. Notice also that Peter calls Him the author of life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. He creates life. The Lord Jesus Christ is also the one that sustains life. Do you know that you don't even twitch unless Christ gives you the power or enables you to do that? You don't take a single breath that God didn't give you. Your heart doesn't beat once without God enabling it. He is the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the creator of life. He is also the one that regenerates to make us alive. He's also called this Jesus, the Savior of His people. He's called the Christ, the, the anointed one, the prophet, the priest and king that came. God's anointed man, especially for us. He's also called, notice He uses the term, the name. If you read through that chapter, you'll see the word, the name, comes up. You say, what's so significant about that? To you and I, it doesn't mean much. But to a Jewish reader or a Jewish person in this time hearing that, that is highly significant. Why? Because the way they referred to God is they called him the name. Isn't that cool? It's faith in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's actually a divine title he is ascribing. So as he's standing there preaching and talking about Jesus, he is identifying him as God repeatedly to these people who are standing in front of him, wondering how all this happened. Notice what God has done. Notice also, just before we get there, is who this God is. Notice the way Peter opens the conversation, talks about who God is. He says he's the God of Abraham. He says he's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of our fathers. 
In other words, he's the God that Abraham trusted all those years ago and left Ur of the Chaldees. He's the God of Jacob who followed the Lord and wrestled all night with the Lord. He's the God of Isaac who trusted and followed God. He's the God of our fathers. And what Peter is reinforcing to them is this. He is the God that our people worship and pray to. Let me make the point a little more clear. He's saying to them, this God that glorified his servant is the God you've all come in here to worship and pray to. And what did God do? Notice what it says in verse number 13. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant. I read that and read that, and it never tripped until one of, wait a minute, back up. Isn't God to be glorified by his servants? That's usually the way it works, isn't it? The master is glorified by the servants. But look what it says. God glorified his servant. That must be some incredibly special servant for God to glorify him. We're designed and created to glorify God in everything we do. But God, in this sense, glorified his servant instead. And how did he do it? We know back in Acts chapter 2 that he displayed him as approved through wonders and signs and miracles. We know that God glorified him by raising him from the dead. We know that God glorified him by exalting him to his own right hand, where he sits in power and glory on the throne of the living God. But he also glorified him by healing this man through faith in Jesus. Now by now, if I was one of those, I'd be getting really uncomfortable. Because he begins to describe what they've done. Look what it says from verse number, the end number, verse number 13 there. He says, God glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Those yous, they're plural and very emphatic. If he could do it with a gesture of a good preacher, he would say, you denied him, you delivered him, you killed him, you so on. You asked for a murderer. And he drives home to them their sin. They denied Jesus. They refused to believe that what he said about who he was. They delivered him over. That was the rejection of a people for their king and their savior. They handed him over to Pilate and said, we don't want anything to do with this guy. He's not, he doesn't belong to us. You take care of him. And they rejected him. They handed him over. They denied him before Pilate and refused to submit to him. Behold your king, Pilate says. And the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. And they refused to submit to him. They asked for a murderer. Isn't that incredibly poignant? Look what it says. You killed, no, sorry, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life. They wanted a murderer. We'll keep the murderer. You take the author of life and you nail him to a cross. And men who are sinners and live in darkness hate the light and hate life. And they wanted to get rid of him. They pushed him away. And by now, those men must be getting very, very uncomfortable as Peter is preaching. 
And Peter's point to them is this, you have acted completely against the God whom you've come here to worship. You're standing in this temple, you're bringing in your altars, you've got all your robes and all your finery, all your washings and all your anointings, and you have gone completely against the God you've come here to worship. You denied and delivered over and killed God's glorified servant. And of course, you can imagine the thought going through their minds, what must we do? You know, brothers and sisters, the reality is we have all sinned. Every single one of us, we're born in it like the lame man. We practice it, we love it, we enjoy it. We do it because we can't stop ourselves and we don't want to stop ourselves. And the reality is, just like those men, we are guilty of killing the author of life. It's our sin for which he died. We are responsible just as surely as they are for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because he died for us in our place. We're guilty of his death. The reality is, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you never trusted in Christ You're just like that lame man, unable to truly live, unable to enter into God's presence, unable to walk, unable to do do what you were created and designed to do. But the wonderful news is there is healing. There is forgiveness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can know what it means, like this man, to walk and leap and to go into the presence of God. What is required? We're going to go come back to this next week, but look at verse 19. He says, repent therefore and turn back. And he gives him three reasons. Number one, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be wiped away and cleaned off the slate. Number two, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You could literally write there that times of revival may come from the Lord. And thirdly, that he may send the Christ appointed. Repent. Repent and know the forgiveness of sin. Repent and know the refreshing, the joy, the revival in your heart that comes from the presence of God. Repent because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. So brothers and sisters, we sit here. And most of us walked in here. And we say, I'm not lame. I don't need that. You know, we all need the healing power of God in our work in our lives. Not just to heal us from the physical ailments, but far greater and far more important to heal us of the spiritual ailments. Brothers and sisters, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're living in unconfessed sin, even as a believer, if there's unforgiveness in your heart, I would... I was in a, involved in a situation very briefly when I was in Canada. Two people, one that cannot forgive the other, both claiming to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, both claiming and serving in a church, but bitter unforgiveness. And it was heartbreaking to watch. And brothers and sisters, an unforgiving, bitter spirit between one brother and, or sister and another Well, just like that lame man will hinder you. You will not know what it is to truly live. 
You'll not know what it is to have fruit and bear fruit to the glory of God because it's all hindered by that sin. And there is healing available, forgiveness form of healing available. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is healing for your soul to be made right, to be made whole, as Peter talks about here, to be ha- to have reconciliation with the living God. There's healing for us, those of us who know the Lord, but there's sin issues still in our life, and God wants to heal us in that sense, that we might walk and live in that joy that this man has. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to say this also. For those who are sick, there is healing. You say, How? Prayer, fasting, what Jesus said in the Gospels. Do we have healing services here? No, we don't. You say, why is that? Well, number one, I don't feel that that's what God has called me to do. And I would be very, very, very careful before I ever took that step. I believe it is possible for God to heal. I'll tell you one story. And the danger of this is you can get into one story after another. Uh, a pastor that I knew of, I didn't know him personally, was called to the to a hospital bed by a person in their church and said, I believe that God wants to heal me. And he said, okay. And he, he didn't know what to do, so he went down to the, to the hospital and the doctors met him outside and they said, look, she's dying. Just leave her alone. And the pastor said, look, she's dying. What's it going to hurt if I go in there and pray with her? And the doctor kind of went, oh. didn't like the idea, but let him in. And the pastor went in and sat down and talked to the lady for quite a while. And he prayed with her, laid hands on her and just prayed with her. And he got up and there was no change. She smiled and she relaxed and he left the room. He got a phone call when he got home. It was a doctor. What did you do to her? I didn't do anything. So no, no, you did something. He said, no, I didn't do anything. She said, well... Whatever it was, she's not dying anymore. And the, the, it might have been cancer. I don't know what the detail was. Let's just say it was cancer. It's gone. She's completely healed. She, and he said, to, he said in the, the tape, I heard on the tape message, he said, I, it was not me. It had nothing to do with me. I simply went down there and I prayed with her. And the Lord in his own timing, in his own way, brought that healing. Does that happen to every believer? No, not in this life, but sometimes, sorry, sometimes in life it does happen. And that is God's desire and God's plan. And we step back and we say, Lord, this is your work. And we allow you to do your work when you so desire. I know many that would say, no, 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 no. The gift of healing is totally gone. It's not the apostolic age as done. I don't see that in the Bible at all. I believe the God that we serve is exactly the same God that they served and loved and worshipped and the God that did those great things in those days for his own time and his own purposes. But God does heal today. can't tell you where. I can't tell you when. I know he does. If you're struggling with a health issue, and I know there are a few of you here this morning that are, pray, cry out to God. But here's the hard part. Trust God that he knows what he's doing if healing does not come. There have been many who have gone to healing meetings, not been healed, and come away devastated 
believing themselves to be committing unpardonable sins and all sorts of things. Tragically, too many men with a very financial mindset have made a fortune off of people claiming to be able to heal and do all sorts of things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you know what? I'll read the verse. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes some that will come in that day. What does he say? Matthew 7 verses 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, workers of sin. What do you say? Does that mean everybody who claims to have the power, the gift to heal is a sinner? No, I didn't say that. What I am saying is there are many who will come in that day claiming because they did things like this that they were God's own and they weren't. And they weren't doing God's work at all. So brothers and sisters, be careful. Be very careful. Approach this with a great deal of prayer. Approach this with trust in God, that if God chooses not to heal, for God for his own purposes, you say, why would God not want to heal me? Is God a meanie? No. Emphatically not. But think about the Apostle Paul. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Three times, Lord, this thorn in my side, take it away. And the Lord came back and said, my grace is sufficient for you. The answer for now is no. Yes, the moment he was beheaded, the moment he stepped into glory, that thorn was gone. And God did heal him at that moment. But brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is if you are here and you're sick and you're struggling with sickness, pray, cry out to God, absolutely. We pray for the sick every Wednesday night. We pray for the sick in our private prayers. We pray that God will bring healing and strength to bodies. I absolutely believe that God can heal irrevocably, perfectly and flawlessly in a moment. This man stood up and walked and leapt. He didn't take six months of physiotherapy to confirm his healing. He was healed immediately. God can do that. Absolutely believe that. You should too. But God does not always do that for his own purposes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Far more important, and I go back to what Jesus said. Peter says, there's lots of people waiting to get healed, Lord. He says, yeah, but I'm going to go this way and preach the truth. He came to preach the gospel. The very fact that the Lord, when this, remember the story of the paralytic? They lowered this guy down on a bed. And he says, be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven. He sees their faith. And they're all looking at him. And, and that's a great piece of news, Lord, but I'm still a paralytic. And you can hear their reasoning. Who is this guy that he thinks he can, you know, I mean, forgiving sins is God's work. And he turns around and looks at me and he says, listen, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Rise up, walk, take your bed and go home. In other words, the healing was proof, was evidence of God's power to forgive sin. It wasn't just to heal the man. It, the healing was for a purpose. 
this man here was healed and God led Peter to stand up and preach the gospel. And the first thing he talks about is not the man's healing, but it's God, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, who offers forgiveness of sin. In fact, in the end of his message there, he never goes back to the healing. He just makes sure they understand that healing is to show that God can, can forgive. And he goes right on with forgiveness and never goes back to healing. Because his main purpose is to see people saved. Their healing will come in due time. I hope that makes sense. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll be, we'll be done for this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you and we give you thanks, O oh God, that you are a wonderful and amazing God. Loving Father. Father, but still the almighty, all-powerful God of the ages. And Father, we thank you that you had love and compassion for your people. You saw us in our great distress. And you sent a Savior who would deal with the greatest issue that we have, which is sin. And Father, we thank you also that throughout his years of ministry, the Lord Jesus, in love and kindness and compassion for his people, saw them in their physical infirmities, their physical frailties, and reached out his hand again and again and again to heal, to make blind eyes seeing, and deaf ears hear, and the lame and the paralyzed walk. And Father, we know that in a day to come, every single one of us will experience healing in that sense. When faith gives way to sight and we see the Lord Jesus Christ and our bodies are glorified. Never again will we know sorrow and suffering and sadness. Father, for those who are in this room, that that message may have been hard to hear. Lord God, I plead with you that you would just pour abundant grace on them. Lord, I pray that you would give them great faith, great encouragement. Lord, we don't know what every one of your purposes are. We can't explain why some things happen. But Father, we know that when all else, that's the wrong way to put it, Lord, we know that we can trust you even though we can't see every reason and every purpose. Father, I plead with you for help for those who are physically struggling. Lord, we pray that you would give them grace. Father, we pray for healing. I believe, oh God, that you can heal. And so I pray, oh God, if it is your will, that you would heal those who are suffering with physical difficulties and frailties. But Father, give us the faith to carry on. Father, to understand Paul's words, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Father, for those who are struggling with sin, Lord, for the believers in this room that are committing sin, wrestling with it, unable to put it off, 
That sin is hindering their walk. It's preventing the fellowship, the relationship, the joy, the fruit bearing that could be theirs. Father, I plead with you that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit to convict them of their need to come to Christ and in faith look to Jesus to be set free from those things and strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to put them off. Father, I ask you for help for them. Lord, for those in this room who have never come to faith in Christ and their sin like that man born lame they have been born in sin and they live in sin and they're unable to put it off and they spend so much time and effort trying to alleviate the symptoms of sin but the root is sin itself and it can be forgiven and washed away in the blood of Christ father for those we ask we plead oh god that you would work in their hearts bring them to faith and repentance help them oh god Father, again, we just ask you for your blessing. We give you thanks, O oh God, for this time in your word, this time of worship, the time of singing, Lord, and prayer. And Father, we ask you for your blessing from it all. And we do so in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.